James chapter number 5 tonight, James chapter number 5, and uh, man, it's a blessing to get to be here in the house of God tonight, amen. I'm thrilled for what the Lord will do in our hearts this evening, thrilled for what God's been doing in our church, and I tell you, it's bright days are right in front of us. God's been so good to us, and uh, it's been bright days already, but I'm just excited. The Lord's been so good to us, He's been faithful. We have no reason to expect He'll be any different, amen. And I'm looking forward to that. James chapter number 5, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1, and I'd like to read down to verse number 12, James chapter 5, verse number 1. The Bible says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. Use it in our hearts tonight. May you receive glory through our receptive spirits, through our obedience unto it. And may you do a work in us that would please you. Lord, I love you. Thank you for loving me. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the opening verses of this chapter, James almost seems to channel the mantle of an Old Testament prophet as he denounces the corruption that he sees around him in the world. And that sort of serves as a as a threshold into a broader discourse concerning the position and attitude of the believer living in times such as that. I don't know about you, but it, it, it could have it could have just as easily been that James said all this after watching the evening news. Amen. It could have been he picked up yesterday's newspaper and read it. And then in response to that. He thundered forth this truth because the reality is we are in as bad, yea, much worse of a situation today than the world was even in during the time that James pinned this down. Not only that, but James will go on to describe the imminence of the coming of the Lord. He says in verse 8, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And if James could say that some almost 2,000 years ago, and how much more could we say today that the coming of the Lord is nearer than it ever has been. In other words, we could say this, that that James is characterizing the brokenness of the world around him. Notice two things just by way of introduction. He points to the fact that he was living in a time of carnality. 
He says in verse 1, go to now, ye rich men. Now, let me say abundantly clear, God, and my pastor used to say it this way, God doesn't look down on a poor man, he doesn't look up to a rich man, but he looks him straight in the eye. And God does not despise the notion of a person having riches. I'd remind you that it was a rich man that loaned his own grave to the Lord Jesus to be laid within. So God's not necessarily against a person having money. But notice that this wasn't just a situation where these people had money. This was a situation where these people's money had them. Because the Bible says this, your miseries that shall come upon you, your riches are corrupted. I'll tell you this, if we're using our riches for the glory of God, they ain't got time to corrupt. Your garments are moth-eaten. If we're wearing out what we've got in carrying the gospel to people, then the moths can't catch up with us. We don't stand still long enough. Your gold and your silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. If we're putting our resources into the work of God, then there's not the opportunity for it to rust. See, the people that James is describing here are people that have become enamored and distracted and obsessed with material goods. Boy, we live in a day where that's the case. Me and my wife were talking about... Uh, where our country has gone wrong and and the day that we live in. I want to be careful in how I say it. I mean, I'm going to offend you one way or the other, no matter what, but I, I want to at least be clear in how I offend you. We live in a day where there is a, a weird deification of the concept of free market capitalism. I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. The free free market capitalism is the best economic system there is. But just as science, when it is given a disproportionate place in society, begins to corrupt things, you say, well, preacher, are you against science? No, I'm not against science. But if science seeks to displace the revelation of God, then science is out of its depths and it's doing something that it is not equipped to do. We were talking about our country and how it was founded. And I believe our founders envisioned every aspect of daily life being governed by the principles and concept of liberty. And that includes the economy. And I believe that if you had asked our founders what kind of economy should we have, they would have clearly said a free market economy. But by the same token, never was the free market to be a God-worshipped at the expense of the of the wholesomeness of our culture and society and at the destruction of those around us. And we're living in a day today where uh, it seems like everything has become legalized and monetized in our society. And I remind you, the Bible warns that, uh, you know, that that uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money itself that's wrong, but when that becomes the God of a society, And when it becomes, well, we have to allow any measure of depravity and degeneracy in our society because there's a demand for it. I'll tell you this, man, broken man places a demand on all sorts of debauchery. That doesn't mean it should be neither legal nor monetized in our society. But we live in a time where that's become commonplace. A lot of this happened, uh, well, I mean, I, I've got opinions about when a lot, of the, a lot of this happened in 1862, but it really doesn't matter what you think about that. When our when our country ceased to be the republic that it was instituted as and founded as. Uh, but certainly with the Industrial Revolution and, and the idea of money not being a means to living, but living being a means to gaining more money, 
And through the Industrial Revolution, it came to be that it didn't just take all of a man's labor to live and raise his family, but now he could capitalize on that in such a way that he could accrue wealth and convert that into power and subjugate his fellow man. And all of a sudden, everything gets wonky in our society. You say, why is that, preacher? Because at the same time, the consciousness of God of our country was being ripped out from underneath it. One of the restraining factors was you wouldn't sell your neighbor for a dollar because he didn't belong to you, he belonged to God. You wouldn't, you wouldn't sell your, your heritage. You wouldn't sell your legacy. You wouldn't sell your children, uh, to the lowest bidder because they belong to God. But then when God was stripped from society, now all of a sudden there became this weird concept that if we can make a dollar off of it, it must be wholesome and it must be good. I'm just telling you, it's not true. We're reaping the fruit of it today. Where now our society is being gutted and when everybody says, well, we ought to stop that, they say, well, you know, I can't help it. They're using their money to do it. That's all that matters. It's madness. It's nonsense. It's insanity. What happened to our society? Well, we yielded to a spirit of carnality. And we live in a day where material things are worshipped. And God's not calling us to a life of rigid aestheticism where we cast away and live like monks in some monastery. That doesn't honor God and that doesn't please God. But I'll tell you this, when it becomes that the money that the God of glory blesses us with becomes the God that displaces the God of glory, our money has become a corrupt thing. And they're living in a time of carnality, and we today are living in a time of of carnality. And one of the great impediments to fixing the brokenness of our society is just surely the shell game of fiat currency and the ability of people in power to use it and wield it as a weapon against our culture. We're living in a time of deep carnality. But then notice it's not just a time of carnality. Look at verse 4. He says this, Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. It was a time of cruelty. It was a time where, I don't know if we'd call it the milk of human kindness. I'm not sure there's ever been such a thing. But certainly the fear of God that would restrain mankind's behavior one towards another had been lost in James's day. And if it was lost then, then it has been shattered and cast aside in our day. Man, we live in a cruel, cold day. I don't know if you realize that, man. Maybe you ain't been downtown lately. They just as soon slit your throat as see you walk by them. We live in a society where mankind, the, the ability to feel and, and empathize and sympathize with another person has been stripped away, it seems, from the, the average individual. We feel as though we're swimming in a sea of strangers in the very land that we've grown up in. It is a time of carnality. It is a time of cruelty. And where does that leave you and I as believers? Well, James, despite the fact that he is denouncing these these corrupt men, despite the fact that he is denouncing these cruel actors, I don't know that James ever really figured they would pick up and read his letter that he wrote to these believers. I think that James, he is setting a framework or a context to a a greater or deeper truth that he begins to disclose in verse 7. And it doesn't really involve those rich men. It doesn't really involve those corrupt men. It doesn't really involve those cruel men. Instead, it involves believers. Because here's one of the precious truths of the Word of God. God knows the world we're living in. God knows what we have to go through. And God knows what we have to face. 
And so he begins to encourage them. And he says this in verse seven, be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. In other words, he says, the world is broken. Don't waste your time trying to somehow reconstruct or rehabilitate it. Try to see it reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one of these days, the Lord, when he returns, he will straighten out this world. You rather are to be waiting daily in anticipation on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he he bolsters the uh, the confidence and and the the zeal and the resolve of believers in these verses, verse seven down to verse number 12. And this is the reason he gives for all that he says. He says, these are some things you need to do because he's coming back soon. We'll preach to you on that thought tonight for a few moments. Uh, some things we ought to do because he's coming back soon. I don't know, I, I'm sure you do know it. You've already been told it. And you probably already knew it without having to be told by us here tonight. But the Lord's coming back. It's the very next thing on God's calendar is the coming of the Lord Jesus. He left and departed in Acts chapter number 1. And he left us with a promise that he would come again soon. And the Bible makes clear that the hope of the believer is not in the next election. It's not in the next social movement. It's not in uh, some shadowy cabal of figures who we trust has our best interest at heart. <laughs> but rather, it's in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he tells us three things we should do in light of the Lord's imminent return. I want you to notice them with me tonight. Verse number seven, he says this, be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. He says it again in verse number eight. Be patient, be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Number one tonight, let me say, he's coming back soon, so let us be patient. I don't know about you, I'm an impatient individual. I don't do well, man. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad we can't lose our salvation, because I'd lose it eight, nine, ten times every time I had to drive up and down the roads of Knoxville, Tennessee. I just get mad. I mean, I do. I'm talking about like not good mad. I mean, I'm talking about like not funny mad, you know. <laughs> I'll go down the road, man, and I just, I, I, if I'm not careful, I, I'll get in a bad spirit just trying to get down. I'm not a patient person. But can I tell you this? It, it, patience will serve us in the days we're living in. We better learn to be patient. Uh, because to not be patient, the only alternative is impatience. And impatience breeds recklessness and breeds mistakes in our lives. What does it mean to be patient? Often people have said, well, to be patient is to wait. But you've heard me say this before. That's not really a, a good definition because uh, if you don't believe you can wait impatiently, then you've never had a child ask you to get them something to eat because they'll teach you what it is to wait impatiently. They'll wait because they can't fix it themselves, but they'll just sit there and vibrate with excitement. What are they doing, man? They're waiting, but they're waiting impatiently. Patience is not just waiting, but patience is waiting with the right spirit. Notice two things about this. First, we see an exhortation here. Be patient, he says. Be also patient. And notice two important truths concerning our patience. Number one, the aim of our patience. Verse seven, be patient, therefore, brethren, till when? Under the coming of the Lord. Gives me two things. One, it gives me a finish line. How long do I have to keep serving God till he comes back? How long do I have to keep waiting on the Lord till he comes back? How long do I keep going to church, preacher, till he comes back? How long do I keep witnessing to people, preacher, till he comes back? 
But not only does it give me a finish line, it also gives me a promise. The fact that he is indeed coming. You see, you and I, what we are living in anticipation of, and I don't know that we'll all be alive when the Lord returns. We may die before then. We don't really know. The Bible describes it and presents it as imminent. It's at the door. We know it's sooner, it's nearer today than it has ever been before. But you and I, we might not go by the clouds. We might go by the clouds of the dirt. I don't know. But I do know this, that we are living in a time where we live with a patient anticipation that it could be at any moment gives me a finish line, but it also gives me a promise. It gives me a goal. It gives me a hope. It gives me an anticipation. I see the aim of our patience. But then in verse 8, I see the attitude of our patience. Be also patient. Establish your hearts. In other words, patience is a matter of the heart. What do we mean by the heart when we say the heart? Of course, we don't mean the fleshy organ that pumps blood through our body, but the heart is typically associated with the seed of emotions. It tells me this, that if I can master my emotions, or maybe more properly put, if I can let the Spirit of God master my heart and my emotions, then I have there all the resources I need for a testimony and life and service of patience. In other words, I've got to guard my heart if I'm going to be patient. I can't let sin in my life. I've got to guard my hope if I'm going to be patient. I can't let cynicism into my life. Hey, listen, I, I, I've, I've got to guard my mind. I, I can't allow sourness or bitterness into my life if I'm going to be patient. It tells me this, that it's a proactive thing and that it's not an external thing, but it's an internal thing. Oftentimes we feel like patience would be much easier if we just had some sort of crumb or morsel that would, would help remind us that things are going to get better. But that's not really what it takes to be patient. It just takes a committed setting of the mind upon the promises of God and the purpose and person of Jesus Christ. If you don't guard your heart, you won't be able to be patient. And if you're not impatient, I don't know about you, but in my life, most of my mistakes have been made in moments of impatience. Impatience. So we see the exhortation here in the beginning of verse 7 and verse 8. And and the end of verse 8 gives us the explanation. Why? For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. What does that mean? It's getting nearer. In other words, in our life, and this is why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that we're not forsake the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, uh, but we're uh, instead to provoke one another unto good works and, and unto love. And it says, and so much the more as ye see the day approach. Can I tell you, there's a reason. So much the more. So much the more. You say, preacher, why do we still do Sunday school? Well, why would we do less? Preacher, why do we still do Sunday nights? Well, why would we do less? Preacher, why do we still do Wednesday nights? Well, why would we do less? You see, if I believe Jesus is coming soon, I'm not signing up for less. I'm signing up for more. I'm not backing off. I'm doubling down. I'm not slowing down. I'm speeding up. And here in this passage, we're reminded that he's coming soon. And that should be the governing and guiding principle of our life. We see the exhortation in verse 7. We see an explanation in verse 8. And then we go back and look in, at the end of verse 7. I, there's a portion I didn't touch on in verses 10 and 11. And we find some examples of patience. Verse number 7, he says this, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. The first example James gives of patience is of sowing in patience. He says, you know, you can even look at the farmer who 
plants seed into the ground. And he understands some things are going to have to to uh, happen. Some things are going to have to take place before he can anticipate any fruit growing. And he says God's going to have to bless it with rain and it's going to take time. And he understands that success very often is really just a formula of which time and faithfulness are the two major ingredients. The farmer plants that seed knowing that his next step is to wait. Knowing that there's going to be a long dearth of time in which he'll seemingly see no activity. But all the while, underneath the soil, God is growing that plant. In the same respect, you and I, we listen, we need to keep serving God, sowing the fruit or the seed of the gospel and laboring in the work of the Lord, understanding that this is the time to work. You listening? One of these days we're going to be in heaven. There ain't going to be no work. This is the time to work. There's a lot of people waiting until one of these days God uh, takes them home to glory and they're perfect and got no problems and then they're going to serve the Lord. They're going to be sad to find out when they get there that there ain't nothing for them to do. That if there was something for them to do, they should have done it in this life. It's sowing time. It's working time. It's tilling time. And if the farmer can put seed in the soil and then wait patiently for the day of harvest, then surely you and I can sow in patience. Verse 10 gives us another example. He says this, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction, and of patience. He points to the Old Testament prophets and says, you know, they are an example of suffering in patience. Has it occurred to you that most of the Old Testament prophets died while two realities were in force concerning their ministry? One, most of them died without ever seeing the fulfillment of the things that they said. And two, most of them died without ever seeing any fruit from the labor of their ministry. The Old Testament is full of examples of Old Testament prophets being martyred. And I'll tell you this, if you're an Old Testament prophet, they don't martyr you because they love you. They don't martyr you because you're popular. And they don't martyr you because they believe you. Jeremiah's ministry was largely spent with people just simply denying and denouncing the things that he said. I mean, you understand and you think about the difference between a man like Isaiah who uh, labored and ministered during one of the most illustrious and, and, and wealthy and, and, and powerful times in Israel's history. And he's saying the Assyrians are going to come and destroy us and then the Babylonians afterwards. You can kind of understand why they laughed at Isaiah. What are you talking about, Isaiah? Everything's, everything's rosy, man. Everything's going great. When Jeremiah prophesied, I'm talking the Babylonian army is outside the gates. And he's saying they're going to destroy us. And false prophets were there in, in uh, Jerusalem crying, peace, peace. When sudden destruction was right outside the door. They took Jeremiah. They dropped him down that hole and left him to die in that pit. He was despised. He was hated. He was the prophet of sorrow and of tears. He was detested and, and despised in his day. But he just kept serving God. Why is that? Because he understood heaven is a lot longer than this life. He understood that eternal matters are far more value than than temporal matters. And over and over again, you see these examples of Old Testament prophets who never saw any fruit from their ministry. Jeremiah never saw any fruit from his ministry. Isaiah died a martyr's death, not ever having really been believed in what he said. Ezekiel died not having been listened to by a stiff-necked and hard-hearted group of people. 
Old Testament prophet after Old Testament prophet. But they didn't give up because they believe God is faithful and he doesn't break a promise. They're an example of suffering in patience. Then verse 11 gives us an example of surviving in patience. He says this, behold, we count them happy which endure. Let me just pause and say this. Once the storm passes, we all want to clap for those that, that stood their ground. Uh, once everything eases up, we all want to clap on the back the person that stood in that time of trial and affliction. And what James is observing here is that we don't applaud quitters. We're not happy for those that quit. It's only those that endure that we consider to have to have succeeded. He says, you've heard the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Here we have an example of surviving in patience. James says, look at the life of Job. Tell me patience doesn't pay. The Bible tells us that Job ends in his days, uh, his life is full of days, and he dies in a good old age. And the Bible describes how that God blessed the latter end of Job's life twice as much. The only two things God didn't give Job two of is, is two sets of children, because he hadn't lost that first set of children. And then two wives, because that wouldn't be a blessing. Somebody say amen. Instead, God blessed everything of the hands of Job. Job winds up better at the end than he was at the beginning. We spend all of our time focusing on the middle years, the middle time, the middle part. But Job is a testimony of patience, uh, not just because of the first uh, 40 chapters, but because of the last chapter or two. When God shows up, blesses and answers and meets Job's need. So here James gives us some examples. Number one, he says this, let us be patient. The Lord is coming soon. Then look at verse number nine. He says this, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. He's coming back soon, so let us be patient. But number two, he's coming back soon, so let us be considerate. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, let's make sure we're getting along with each other. He says this, grudge not one against another. That language is interesting. That word grudge, it means to run a person down. It's interesting because it can speak to both sides of a grudge or a, a, a contention of bitterness. It could speak of those that are the hostile actor that have slandered and run another person down. Or it's speaking of a grudge. I mean, typically the person holding the grudge is the person that feels aggrieved. And it could speak of the person that feels as though they were the target of that activity. And James's answer is this. Hey, we better get things right because the judge is showing up soon. In other words, he speaks first of the reconciliation that we ought to have with each other. I'll tell you this, man. I, and I, I don't guess in my life that every relationship will ever be what I wish it was. But I sure enough don't want Jesus coming back and finding me with a sour, bitter, angry spirit. I mean, I can't make people be right with me, but I can make sure I'm right. I can't make people get right, but I can make sure that I'm right. And if we really believe that he's coming back soon, I'll tell you this. I I grew up, me and my brother didn't have the best relationship growing up, mainly due to his being a jerk. And uh I mean, he done grew out of it, I guess, but... Back then, I mean, he was he was a big brother, and I was a little brother. I remember one time we were sitting there, and and I can't remember what it was about. We was probably wrestling over the TV remote, and uh, he's a lot bigger than me then, and because uh, I was just a little fella, 
And he he had wrestled me to the ground, and he had took the TV remote. You know, Big Brother's going to be punks, man. I mean, he was just, he was right in my face, and what are you going to do about it? And he had me pinned to the ground. And I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, but I thought, I can't hit him, but boy, I can spit on him. (laughs) And I conjured things from deep within my lungs, and I spit right in his face. He looked stunned. And he jumped up and ran into the other room and went, Mom! <laughs> I figured he would have beat me half to death, amen? But, uh, you know, <laughs> that was just a fun story to tell. That ain't really got no spiritual application. I just tell that story every chance I get because I like it. i tell you this, I, you know, growing up, we fought, we, we fussed, we feuded at times. And, you know, you can't always make somebody get along with you but you can make your mind up you're not going to be wrong with them. I see the reconciliation in this passage. I see the reason. He says this, lest you be condemned. We all feel like we're justified when we feel aggrieved. We all feel like we're right. That's normal. That's natural. I remember someone years ago looking at me and saying, well, you just always think you think you're right all the time. And I looked at him. I said, duh. That's a dumb thing to say to somebody. We all think we're right all the time. Uh, you know, it's not prideful to think you're right all the time. It's prideful to think it's impossible that you could be wrong. We understand I, I have the capacity. I mean, it's happened once or twice. I've been wrong in life, but we always all think we're right all the time. And when we feel aggrieved, we feel like we're standing on solid footing. James reminds us we better be sure about that because one day we're going to have to give an account for it. He points to not only the reconciliation and the reasoning, but he he points to the reckoning. It says, behold, the judge standeth before the door. I remember why I told you about spitting in my brother's face. Growing up like that, uh, we always fussed and feuded and, and, and fought, during, particularly during summertime, because we'd be home all day and Daddy would be at work. You know, other times we was at school, uh, and that kind of kept us tame. But, but during summertime, we'd fuss and feud and fight with each other. But I tell you this, man, about the time we knew Dad was going to roll in, we got real friendly with each other. And any problems that we had, we, we reconciled before dad ever came in through the door. Cause I'll tell you what, uh, after, you know, 10 hours of working, if he come through the door and used fighting, everybody was getting a whooping. Didn't matter who was wrong. Everybody was getting a whooping, you know? And so we knew the judge was standing at the door. We knew it could happen at any moment. And so what we'd do is we'd rush to settle things with each other. See, we didn't want them telling lies like we'd spit in their face or some nonsense like that, so we'd get things settled. James fundamentally is saying this. Let's make sure we're right with each other. You can't make somebody be right with you. I know that. You can't make somebody get right and live right and be right and do right. But if you are right, you'll be able to have peace in the Lord. Even if they won't get right, you'll be able to have peace in the Lord. Let's make sure that that we're right best as we can. He says, let us be considerate. Then look at verse 12 and I'm done. He says this, but above all things, above all things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. But let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest you fall into condemnation. That's an interesting verse. I'll tell you why, because on on the first reading of it, it appears like it doesn't really apply that much to us. Seems a little irrelevant. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't every day of my life going around swearing oaths. That's just not how I live my life. 
I don't constantly go up to people and say, I swear by the God of heaven that I will this. I mean, maybe maybe you find yourself in those situations. I'd be interested to sit and hear you tell me about your day. But that doesn't happen to me very often. So what does this mean to our life? What is James pointing at? Well, I think there's three things here we've got to say to understand it. Number one, once you notice there's a word of attention here. He says, but above all things. Now, what does he mean by above all things? Does he mean literally everything that's ever been said or taken into consideration? Well, no. I don't think he would say, even above getting saved, consider this. But he's talking about in the context of this passage. And he's saying, I've been giving you these instructions. But above all those other things, there's something that you need to do. There's a word of attention. And then he gives us a word of instruction. My brethren, swear not. Now, I want you to stop and think, why would a person swear something? I'm not just talking about using barnyard language. I'm talking about making a promise. That's really what swearing something is, right? You swear an oath and you're saying, I am pledging something. I am promising to do something. And what he's saying is this. Don't live your life on promises. Live your life on actions. The instruction is this, and I'm going to say it this way. Let us be patient. Let us be considerate. Number three, let us be urgent. Because he's coming back soon. He's saying, don't live your life saying, I swear one day I'm going to do this. And I swear one day I'm going to do that. He's saying, no, when you say yes, it needs to be yes. And when you say no, it needs to be no. In other words, say what you mean, mean what you say, and do what you say you're going to do. Don't put it off to another day. And don't live your life based upon wishes and plans that one day may or may not materialize. He's coming back soon, man. You better get busy now because you may not have next year. You may not have the next five years. You may not have the next ten years. You may not have the next ten minutes. So you better make sure that you're living for the Lord. Notice not only a word of attention and instruction, but he ends with a word of caution. Why? lest you fall into condemnation. Now, it's interesting to compare that to what he said back in verse number 9. Verse 9, he said, lest you be condemned. But he adds this little word here in verse 12, lest you fall into condemnation. You know why that is? Because he's saying you can have every sincere intention of doing something for God, but you find that you fall short in doing it for the Lord because you run out of time because the Lord comes back first. In other words, he's not saying you're not sincere. He's saying, but if, you know, you may be sincere, but if you want to be certain, don't put it off. Serve him now. We have no promise of tomorrow for a myriad of reasons. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, the, the Lord may come back. Amen. It could happen any moment. For those of us who go around spitting in people's faces, somebody might shoot us. Amen. We don't know what may happen. So we better get busy now doing something for God. You believe he's coming back. I know you do. I trust you do. You always say amen when Jim says that. I do too. Amen. I believe that. But if I really believe it, it's going to produce three things. That's going to make me patient. I'm not going to live my life running from this to that to the other. But I'm going to settle in on serving God and make that count. It's going to make me considerate. I can't make people be right with me. I can't make people be okay. But I can make sure that I'm right with the Lord. I can make sure that I am, to the best of my knowledge, right with them. That if I've, I've done something against them, I've tried to restore it and set it right. And then beyond that, that I'm living right with God. I can't stop them from being wrong with me, but I can make sure that I'm right with God. And then let us be urgent and not waste the precious time that we've got. Let's bow together this evening.
Uh, a musician's going to come play. Karen, why don't you come play for us tonight? And uh, I want to give you an opportunity to meet the Lord in the altar. If he spoke to you about one or all of these things, why don't you meet him down uh, here and talk to him about that? I, I, I'll tell you this. We, we better get that sense of urgency that we don't put it off. Well, next time he deals with me, I will. Well, you may not get a next time. Well, one of these days I'll get serious. Well, you may not get that day, but you do have this day and this moment. So why don't you meet him in the altar? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.